Okay, welcome okay. to UK Column. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Chris Williamson, a former Labour MP uh, and, of course, uh, anti-war activist, uh, and Vanessa Bailey uh, from Damascus, as usual. Um, now, we're going to get straight into today but because we've got a lot to get through, but uh, I want to start off with a little piece of video. Now, this is Peter Ford uh, speaking at uh, the uh, peace rally that was held in uh, Edinburgh a couple of months ago. Uh, and he's talking about uh, the question of why there is no uh, peace movement in the UK at the moment. If anything, Britain is, is chief among the warmongers. Uh, it, it, at least in America, there is contestation, there's argument, debate. You get nothing of that uh, here. In America, you have leading re Republican candidates, Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, are both opposed to America throwing away billions on an unwinnable war. You also have uh, Kennedy on the uh, Democratic side, equally opposed. Where are their equivalents here? There is no discussion here, no debate. And for that, I blame one man, one man, and his name, name begins with J, and he's something of a discredited figure. Yes, you've got it, Jeremy, Jeremy Corbyn, yes, not Johnson, Jeremy Corbyn, why? because he ended up discrediting the Peace Party. The Labour Party used to be the party of peace until approximately the days of Tony Blair. But there was still a strong peace current within the Labour Party. And Jeremy Corbyn was the leader on this platform, got himself elected on uh, an anti-warmongering platform. But for a variety of reasons, he screwed up. Partly because he was demonized by the media, but also through his own failings and failure to stand by his, his colleagues, his loyal colleagues, and by his uh, beliefs. So, the implosion of Corbynism left a huge gap in British politics, but not one which is empty to this day. What's happened is that the, the Starmer, the people in the Labour elite, have rushed to portray themselves as even more patriotic and jingoistic than the Tories. And they've succeeded in that. And they, the result is that there is no peace lobby, there be no restraint whatsoever on the British government throughout this Ukraine conflict. That, they, that is why we are the biggest warmongers, even bigger than America. So, Chris Williamson, I'd like to welcome you to the programme and begin by asking, is Peter Ford correct? Is he being fair? Well, Jeremy is program was incredibly popular and I think his weakness and his mistake was in not fighting back against the bad faith actors. The was a concerted effort by the Zionist lobby, by the corporate capitalist elites in Britain to undermine him. And indeed there were other players uh, involved uh, from Mike Pompier, you know, in the US, to Benjamin Netanyahu, all of whom had, had intervened in the British democratic process. Uh, Pompier saying words to the effect that, you know, they couldn't risk a, a Corbyn premiership. So there was an, an enormous amount of, of pressure on him. But, but his mistake, as I say, was in trying to, or prioritising, I suppose, keeping the parliamentary Labour Party together, trying to avoid a split and in not actually supporting the democracy reforms that I was championing, and indeed that, that Jeremy had previously himself supported, and, and I think it's certainly in the early part of my campaign, the Democracy Roadshow that I that I engaged in, um, you know, he was supportive of that. That was his failure, you know, in not actually um, fighting back uh, against the bad faith actors who were accusing him 
uh, of anti-Semitism and of, of actually facilitating that. Um, as, as Peter was saying there, you know, defending is what, where is Praetorian Guard? Because the people that were being thrown under the bus uh, we're all Jeremy's strongest supporters, people like myself, obviously, but also prominent individuals like Jackie Walker, who was the vice or had been the vice chair of Momentum, and uh, Mark Wadsworth, the, the, the well-known black rights activist who introduced Nelson Mandela to the Stephen Lawrence family, you know, and many, many others. And I said on a number of occasions to Jeremy, stop saying sorry, Jeremy, because you of all people have got nothing to apologise for, and all you're doing is feeding the beast. And I also prevailed upon, without success, the Socialist Campaign Group of Labour MPs inside the uh, Parliamentary Labour Party to urge them to, to push back and indeed to, to push Jeremy uh, and to some extent John McDonnell, who I thought was, was on side at that point in time, uh, to go further, not just on, on their anti-imperialist stance, but, but on a range of uh, topics domestically, uh, to to create space. I mean, my point was that we need to create space for John and Jeremy to occupy, because all the pressure is coming from, from the right, coming from the uh, parliamentary right wing of the Parliamentary Labour Party, and for, obviously from the media and from the Zionist lobby uh, and from other uh, you know powerful vested interests. So yeah, I'm perhaps a little bit more charitable uh, than, than Peter, but, but definitely his weakness was in, in, in allowing those those vested interests to, to get the, the upper hand. Uh, and Jeremy had a chance, might not still have succeeded, but he had a chance, I think, of, of actually really changing, you know, Britain for the better. But in order to achieve that, he needed a degree of ruthlessness against his enemies. And, and that's what was lacking. Apologies if they're banging, by the way. I'm having windows installed, so you may have some banging in the, in the background. But hopefully it will be intermittent and not too disturbing. No problem. Thank, uh, thanks for that, uh, Chris. Uh, Vanessa, just get your thoughts on, on that and what Chris has just said and also what Peter was saying there. I agree with Chris. I also agree with Peter, I think. But however you look at it, we lost a tremendous opportunity to push through policies that might have at least put a break on um, the neo-colonialist policies of successive governments, whether it was Labour, New Labour or um, Tory. I guess... I mean, I, I had the impression, I think, back in 2017 from one of Corbyn's advisors that there was not only external pressure, there was also internal pressure and that he didn't have enough support uh, on, on the backbenches in Parliament to, to, let's say, take a stand on various issues, including Syria, because that was what I was talking about at the time. So I guess my question, if I can, to Chris, is you've kind of explained or touched on why Jeremy didn't stand his ground. But was it bad advice? Was it weakness? Was it vulnerability that made him abandon his own principles and integrity over certain issues? And of course, particularly Syria, because that was really uh, front of house at that time when, when Corbyn uh, was leader of the Labour Party. So I guess for me to understand exactly how somebody could renege on really what appeared to be their most integral priorities and principles. I think it was a combination of all those things, uh, if I'm honest, uh, Vanessa. Uh, clearly, he was getting very, very, very bad advice um, from the people who were around him in the leader's office. Their default position, when any criticism, particularly in relation uh, to uh, issues of you know that were important to the you know to the Zionist lobby to the Israel lobby, their default position was to surrender, was to run the white flag up, uh, up the pole, as it were, and to capitulate. Um, yes, of course, there was not much support in the parliamentary Labour Party, but but uh, you know it couldn't have been any worse, could it, if Jeremy had taken a stand? And frankly, in my experience, the all the MPs, and this includes those on, I mean, you know, I was a bit of a rarity. I'm not trying to sort of blow my own trumpet, as it were, but it seems to me I was the only one that was prepared to stand on on principle. Because in the end, they all prioritised their their career. And I think if Jeremy, look, uh, Boris Johnson gave a masterclass in how to be a strong leader uh, when he sacked, uh, withdrew the whip from 
a number of Tory grandees. I mean, Winston Churchill's grandson, a former um, Chancellor of the Exchequer, were among the people that he purged when they were opposing the stance he was taking in relation to uh, Brexit. And I think had Jeremy uh, taken a firm stance against some of the worst offenders, people like Ian Austin, who ultimately left the Labour Party and has been elevated to the House of Lords by the Conservatives, uh, then I think, you know, many of those people would have fallen in line. And of course, the other thing, the other fatal error that Jeremy made was in actually not getting behind the democracy reforms that I was uh, championing. I mean, to be fair, Jeremy kicked them off himself, actually, the democracy review, but he left out of that the crucially important uh, aspect of democracy in terms of Labour Party democracy to make MPs accountable to the party that they represent, to the membership, to the grassroots, who are much more in touch in reality with uh, uh, with uh, issues on the ground in, in, in the country, in the constituencies, as it were. I mean, as I often used to make this point on the Democracy Roadshow meetings, uh, I quoted Ed Miliband when he was standing to become the Labour leader in 2010. He said, if we'd listened to our members a little bit more, we wouldn't have made as many mistakes in government. And absolutely right, I pointed out, we wouldn't have got involved in the illegal invasion of Iraq. We wouldn't have introduced uh, tuition fees. Uh, you know, we wouldn't have cut back on social security benefits. We would have had a, a, a meaningful industrial strategy, etc., etc. You know, we wouldn't have deregulated, further deregulated the banks. And so the list goes on. And had Jeremy, I think, supported those uh, reforms, that particular reform, then that would have been carried at the Labour Party conference because it was overwhelmingly supported by the grassroots. Over 90% of the constituency party delegates at the 2018 conference supported open selections, making MPs accountable to their members so that they would have to go through an endorsement process between every election. But Jeremy implored the trade union delegates and the votes at Labour Party conference are split 50-50. 50% of the votes go to the constituency Labour parties and 50% go to the trade unions and affiliated socialist societies. And it included even trade unions like the Unite the, uh, Unite the Union that had a 2016 policy of supporting mandatory reselection for MPs, open selections, and they voted against their own policy. The only union that actually supported the grassroots membership was the Fire Brigade Union. Now, had Unite supported their own policy, that change in the constitution of the Labour Party would have gone through with a comfortable majority. And the course of history, I think, would have been different. Because, as I've said, these characters, these members of parliament, are all careerists. And Having the sword of Damocles, as it were, hanging over their heads like that, knowing that they would have to respect the uh, the policies arrived at by democratic means within the party of the membership, which are actually much more reflective of where the general public were, because if you actually looked at the policy agenda that Jeremy was putting forward, a modest socialist program at home and an anti-imperialist agenda uh, abroad, overwhelmingly popular with the vast majority of the British people, never mind Labour Party members. It's the members of Parliament that are out of step, you know, uh, with the uh, with, with the wider general public, not, not, the, uh, not the activist base. And had that been, as I say, had that gone through, then, uh, you know, they would have fallen in line. And many of them, actually, I'll say many, a number of them would certainly have been deselected and others would have definitely fallen in line. But when that didn't go through, uh, and when they also, the National Executive Committee embraced the IHRA working definition of anti-Semitism in that same month in September 2018, that then emboldened the haters. It certainly emboldened the Zionist movement. And so the attacks were stepped up. Uh, and, uh, you know, basically that was when Jeremy signed his death warrant, signed his own death warrant and signed the death warrant of the Corbyn project and the death warrant of a of, of an opportunity to bring about an irreversible shift in the balance of wealth and power in this country through the Labour Party. Now, the Labour Party is totally ruined. And our only salvation now, it seems to me, is to work night and day to destroy the Labour Party and to try, as difficult as it is, to create a new vehicle to deliver that vision, which was actually set out in the 1974 Labour Party manifesto. It said in black and white that they 
government, a Labour government, would bring about that irreversible shift in the balance of wealth and power in favour of working people and their families. That was then abandoned when Harold Wilson stepped down and Denny Seeley went to the International Monetary Fund on a false premise in 1976 that somehow Britain was running out of money, which is impossible in a country that issues its own currency. But I set all this out, actually, and I give my book a plug. In my book, which, I, which I've written about my time in Parliament called 10 Years Hard Labour, um, so I set out that the Miliband era where he claimed to be on the left, but actually ended up being taken prisoner by the, the, the Blairite wing of the uh, Parliamentary Labour Party and the rise and fall of Jeremy Corbyn. And it's a tragedy. It really is a tragedy what, what happened. But, uh, but yeah, Jeremy's mistake was all those things, I think, that you've set out uh, there. But he, he alone can't be held totally responsible because the Socialist campaign group also have a lot to answer for because they didn't give them any support whatsoever in actually trying to, you know, push the envelope and to, you know, bring about this change, which which people want, wanted and still want in this country. The issues with the Labour Party and the issues with the anti-war movement seem to be related in the sense that the one name that keeps popping up in both cases is Tony Blair. And if we think back to uh, the Iraq war and the, the protest, at really the height of the strength of the, of the anti-war movement was getting a million people out on the streets to protest the Iraq war. Uh, Tony Blair decided to ignore that protest. Um, and what was disappointing for me at that time, because it was there that day, was that Tony Blair ignored the protest and then the anti-war movement really didn't follow up uh, and didn't continue. At least that's my memory of it anyway. Um, and in the meantime, in the intervening years, as, as more conflict has happened around the world with the UK uh, very much driving it in many cases, um, we haven't seen any kind of response from the anti-war movement or the peace movement. Um, and all the while, in the meantime, in the background, Tony Blair has been uh, sort of pushing buttons within the Labour Party. And so uh, I'd be interested in your thoughts on that and, and what has hap what happened after the that million people protest and why we've never seen that that type of event take place again. I think it's a similar phenomenon to what we've seen since the destruction of the Corbyn project. People were demoralised. And you know, to mobilise a million plus people on the street, I mean, it's quite incredible. Uh, and for that to then just be ignored and for the illegal war, the illegal invasion to proceed, a million dead Iraqis, um, Blair, you know, then going on and winning another election, albeit with a smaller <laughs> number of votes than Jeremy Corbyn achieved in, in 2019. Um, I think people were just simply demoralized. And I don't think they've ever, you know, the anti-war movement's never really recovered from that. I mean, a number of us are trying to we know, rejuvenated. We, we've established a no to NATO, no to war movement. It, it's still a small acorn at the moment. But of course, we know what the state is capable of in terms of the whole divide and rule strategy, the way in which you know, progressive groups, socialist groups are infiltrated by state players to, to sow discord and division. And I think this you know, the whole um, issue that we have at the moment, you know, with the sort of culture wars are being promoted by by the state. I mean, and that's not me being a conspiracy theorist. We know from the spy cop revelation, which only kind of scratch the surface, that, that, uh, that state operatives did infiltrate. I mean, this is on the record. This is a matter of public record now. Did infiltrate a range of different groups, political groups, uh, you know, environmental groups, even to the extent you'll be aware, I'm sure, you know, um, to uh, impregnating some of the female members of the of the green movement, um, and you know these were these were these were state actors sent in to obviously you know undermine uh, the you know the effectiveness of of the movement. I think the the attacks which we're currently seeing on Russell Brand are very much part of that whole process he's seen as a you know too dangerous a figure with with a huge platform seven million plus people and he's challenging the military industrial complex he's challenging and exposing big pharma um he's challenging the you know the, the corporate capitalist class uh, and uh, you know the, the the damaging effect of of neoliberalism and 
you know, he's had to be, they're seeking to silence him. Uh, and this is what they do to, to all, you know, prominent nonconformists. I mean, I've been a victim of that. I know Vanessa has. And indeed, one of the, one of the, one of the, one of the, um, the reasons that was given, spurious reasons that was given to suspend me initially from the Labour Party was because I'd met Vanessa and, and, and had tweeted uh, some nice <laughs> comments about, about her about what a privilege it was to meet her. And, and I mean, I'd never met or heard Vanessa speak before. Now, we, we both attended the Beautiful Days Festival, and I think that was in 2018 as well, uh, in August 2018, actually. Uh, and it, it was Peter Ford, actually, was, was debating the issue of Syria with, uh, with Peter Tatchell, and, and Vanessa spoke from the floor incredibly eloquently. I was, I was really blown away. It was a, a really, really uh, eloquent uh, and powerful contribution. And... Uh, you know, I really wanted to sort of meet her afterwards and just shake her hand and say what a privilege it was to hear her speak and so on. And, and I just tweeted something to the effect that it was, you know, a privilege to meet Vanessa Bealey at the Beautiful Days Festival. And that was one of the grounds that was given for suspending me from the Labour Party. It was just absolutely bizarre, bizarre, weird, you know, <laughs> crazy. It made no sense whatsoever. It just shows how much they were scraping the barrel. But this is the problem, you know, and this is why you need to challenge these forces because, uh, you know, they, they take no prisoners, as we've seen, you know, with, with Jeremy. And I was constantly re reminding uh, 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 people in the, in the uh, socialist campaign group uh, that uh, of uh, Pastor Niemöller's uh, poem, you know, First They Came. And um, we're seeing that time, they're going to one by one, they're being picked off. I mean, you know, obviously Jeremy's gone, but Diane Abbott's been, been kicked out. And, uh, uh, is, it, uh, is it Mark Tarry, another one who has uh, um, been dropped as a, as a, as a uh, Labour candidate for the next uh, election? You know, all these things are um, inevitable, it seems to me, unless you, you fight for what you believe in. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, they're, they're obsessed with the Westminster bubble, too many of them. And uh, but just back to your, your, your original point, I think, and just to come back to what I originally said in relation to, you know, why the anti-war movement has, has not really re served, you know, re rejuvenated itself. I think it, it is that sense of, of hopelessness and demoralisation and that and the people, I think, feel that, you know, it's... Um, you know, it's, it's impossible to, to fight this, this machine. But all we've got is each other. All we've got in the face of this, this power that's wielded by the state, by corporate capitalism, is each other, is solidarity. And when people recognize that when we stand in collective solidarity, we are incredibly powerful and we, we, we can actually prevail. But it's trying to, you know, get people to you know, realize that. And, uh, and, you know, we saw it initially, I think, with the with anti-war movement that led to a million people on the street. We saw it again with the with the Corbyn surge, uh, both of which, unfortunately, were were defeated, uh, which makes it even harder now to regroup. But we have to regroup. We have to dust ourselves off and we have to keep fighting. But you were talking about uh, the infiltration. I'll just remind everybody, of course, it's only a year, a year, year and a half since the government uh, pushed through legislation, which makes uh, the illegal activity by state agents for this type of inter intervention in, in campaign groups and so on, a, a legal thing, uh, so they can break the law with, with impunity. Just remind everybody about that. But uh, I'd be interested in just, I'm going to come back to Vanessa in a second, but uh, do you think, because I've seen in the anti-war movement, as small as it is still in the United States, we're seeing uh, people from all sides of the political spectrum uh, coming together on that. Are, are you seeing the same thing in the UK? Well, we're certainly trying to uh, replicate that. And, and we've made very powerful links, actually, with the Rage Against the War machine in the United States. This is the No to NATO, No to War campaign that I'm talking about now. Uh, and they absolutely, I mean, they've had their difficulties, though, of course, because, you know, you've got people in the US as well who are, who are also obsessed with the, uh, you know, with the culture wars, etc. And they are saying that, oh, well, we're not prepared to share a platform with X, Y, or Z because I don't like their views on A, B, and C. Or that individual's, you know, uh, a right-winger, I'm not going to collaborate with them. And, you know, what the Rage Against the War Machine, I think, the, the secret to their success has been that they've said, look, let's put all the, all the other baggage, let's leave that at the door. 
do we agree that we are opposed to nuclear war? Do we agree that we want to, you know, bring an end to the, uh, you know, to the war machine, to the proliferation of wars around the world? If the answer to that is yes, let's forget about everything else. Let's just focus on that. And that's what I've been trying to argue for. That's what we're arguing for in No Tenets. We've been criticised, actually, because we've had people on the platform who, 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 you know, I would kind of repudiate their, 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 their political beliefs on a range of other topics. But on this issue, we agree. And I'm more than happy to, you know, speak alongside those individuals if they're going to speak in unison against the horrors of war, against the horrors of nuclear war, against the, you know, the horrors of, of, um, of colonialism and, and imperialism. And, you know, surely, particularly for people who are socialists, what we should be doing is trying to bring people together, trying to win people over by the force of our argument. But the, the problem would be countered in Britain has been that even people on the left won't share platforms with or, or, or campaign alongside other people on the left because they disagree with them on, on, on some issue on of identity politics, you know of trans rights or whatever it might be. And I, I'd be saying to people, look, for Christ's sake, can't we simply agree where we agree and just have fraternal disagreements where we don't? So to go even beyond that, which we've done in no to know, to, to say, well, look, let's just embrace all comers who, who, who have, because we've just one goal, you know, we're opposed, opposed to war, opposed to NATO. Uh, let's focus on that. Uh, and, you know, we'll work with anybody on that specific issue. And I think that's that is a powerful. If we can get that to fly, that's a, a very, a very, a very powerful uh, modus operandi, and something that, of course, will really frighten the establishment, and and something which I think is 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 having some success in the US, probably more success than we're having so far in in, in the UK. But it is something that we definitely need to do. Vanessa, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more with that comment, and uh, you know the big. Uh, trick of of the British government for many 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 years has been the whole divide and conquer thing. We've got to get past this. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, it is not only a question of the size of the complex that we're fighting against. And I hear this all the time from people that understand how the West works here in Syria. That we, as the so-called resistance, need to be as organised, as united, as uh, strong in solidarity, even if we disagree. I'm sure that most of them disagree with each other, but when it comes to the agenda and pushing the agenda forward, they're united. Partly they are incentivized, of course, which doesn't really enter the dialogue for us because obviously you know, we're frozen out of much of the ability to earn money for what we do. Um, as, as Chris said, you know, that most of the MPs are afraid to lose their position of privilege and, and wealth and, and influence, right? Privilege probably being top of that pile. But I think what I just wanted to ask you, Chris, you, you've touched on the unions, and I know that you're a strong advocate for uh, unions and for their influence um, on our society. And of course, in my opinion, it's largely been infiltrated. As you mentioned, it's largely been co-opted. Um, and I, I was kind of interested that you mentioned the Fire Brigade Union. I'll tell you why, because Mike will probably remember this, but at UK Column, at one point, we reached out to the Fire Brigade Union to try and um, talk to them about standing in solidarity, not with the CIA MI6 construct, which was the white helmets in Syria embedded with Al-Qaeda and other extremist armed groups and committing human rights crimes against Syrian civilians under their occupation, but to actually stand in solidarity with the real Syria civil defense that is the only accepted civil defense organization by all the kind of uh, umbrella organizations, the majority uh, or the main one being based in Geneva. When we tried to speak to a representative, their response was quite staggering. They basically said, well, it's not really our problem, mate. Speak to the Home Office. So it, to what extent is the um, decimation of the power of the unions also had an influence on the anti-war movement? and the understanding well, of what is actually going on uh, with the government, successive 
government uh, neo-colonialist policies? Oh, I mean, a huge influence. Well, in terms of the, mem- I mean, we're talking about unions. I mean, I'm, you know, t- separating the kind of bureaucracy from the the grassroots, mm. but the but the, certainly the bureaucracy leadership of, of the trade unions, um, uh, you know, uh, from each individual unions right the way through to the TUC, Trade Union Congress, uh, have been dreadful uh, of late, in particular in relation to uh, war. Um, we've got. The GMB union, one of the biggest unions in the country, Gary Smith, their general secretary, uh, pushing the TUC essentially to to ally themselves with, with Nazis in Ukraine. I mean, the, the motion that they originally put forward was even more egregious than the one that was eventually composited down, which was which was um, you know marginally more palatable, but ultimately you know they they were. Voting in favour of of the war, which is no reference to, you know, peace negotiations, to the uh, provocations that led to the war, the fact that uh, the Atlantic Council were openly publishing articles with headlines like the strategic case for risking war with Russia, the fact that the U.S. State Department, sorry, U.S. Defense Department had commissioned the Rand Corporation to do a study on ways to weaken Vladimir Putin and Russia and to Balkanize the country because there are rich pickings to be had. Uh, the fact that you know NATO uh, rejected out of hand Russia's proposal for peace and security in Europe prior to the uh, uh, military operation. Uh, no reference uh, in the uh, debate, as I understand it, at the TUC, and certainly nothing in the in the motion, which eventually agreed about the coup that was supported in Ukraine by the United States, a violent coup supported by the United States and by the European Union. And that coup was led by literal Nazis. No reference to that. And so, yeah, they've been very much uh, involved. And I mean, they make the argument as well, and particularly trade unions like the GMB and to some extent sections of Unite, that, oh, well, there's jobs to be had from the so-called defense industry, from the armaments industry. But, you know, that's a misplaced uh, viewpoint in any event, because if you look at the statistics, it shows that in, I think it was 1981, there was something in the order of 450, 460,000 people in the United Kingdom working in the armaments industry. And that figure had hemorrhaged I mean, the last time I looked at it, the figure was uh, it was two, three years back. It's gone right down to something about 150,000, 140,000. Um, yeah, I can't remember the precise figure, so don't actually yeah. you know, quote me on those precise figures. But they were in that ballpark. So basically two-thirds of the people had lost their jobs anyway in, in, that, in that industry. And uh, I've been arguing that what you should be pushing for in the trading movement is defence diversification. This is something that Jeremy was putting forward in his original leadership pitch on uh, uh, Trident in particular. Obviously, he was calling for scrapping Trident, but was saying that we could use the investment which is going into Trident to to invest in new high-tech engineering skills and could actually create probably three or four times more high-tech, high-skilled jobs. Uh, commanding those those uh, higher salaries, etc. So yes, the trade union movements have been trade union leadership anyway. I've been really appalling on, on this um, on the grounds of jobs, etc. You know, some misplaced um, so-called solidarity with the Ukrainian people, for example. I mean, it's just really terrible. And and you know, the trade union movement, I think, could be and should be a much bigger force. For raising political consciousness in this country, I mean, it's you know six or seven million people there, kind of a captive audience, where you know the trade unions could really be doing a huge, important role in you know exposing the military-industrial complex, exposing you know the corporate capitalist world, you know, giving people that information because knowledge is power. And then we've got a situation where somebody who is doing that in the Russell Brand, who had previously mentioned, who's using his platform with seven, six or seven million people to expose the abuses of neoliberalism and the war machine and et cetera, et cetera, is being taken down. And 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 there's there's a you know there's a massive lynch mob on social media which is comprised predominantly of so-called you know lefties, you know, the liberal the liberal left. 
And uh, talk about shooting yourself in the foot again. So somebody who is, who is uh, you know, really important uh, truth teller, like, uh, you know, Julian, well, I'm not putting him in the same category as Julian Assange, obviously, and I don't think Russell Brand would put himself in the same category either. But somebody who is, uh, you know, challenging this, the status quo is, is being silenced. That's, that's, that's the name of the game. And, of course, you know, they used uh, spurious allegations of sexual misconduct against uh, Julian Assange as well. And there was a, there was a feeding yeah. frenzy and Labour MPs signing up, calling for his immediate uh, removal from uh, the UK to Sweden. Um, and, and even Jeremy Corbyn, who was leader at the time, you know, was saying, well, you know, Julian Assange needs to face these charges. You know, rather than acknowledging that this, well, this, this, this is clearly a scam that's going on here. Um, uh, you know, and again, I was really, you know, sounds like I'm blowing me on Trump, but I was the only MP that was willing to stand up and say, no, this ain't right. You know, we've got to, we should be supporting Julian Assange. So it is very, very disappointing, to say the least. And, uh, you know, the trade union movement uh, leadership does have a lot to answer. But if you look back in history, it's always been the way, even far back to the 1926 general strike. It was a Labour Party and the TUC leadership that, that sort of capitulated and betrayed that, that huge opportunity that was there where, where the working class had been, been mobilised, but, but they let them down. Okay, so you've uh, brought Russell Brand and Julian Assange into this, and and this yeah. is maybe a good time to to move on to that topic because um, back in 2017, 2018 time, uh, of course, we had two uh, events. I suppose one was that we discovered that the counter disinformation and media development program existed in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. And the other thing was the Integrity Initiative was exposed. And I'm glad to say we had a certain uh, uh, contribution to make in that because we discovered that um, the address that they were using was a disused derelict mill. So it was clearly something extremely bogus and underhand about that organization. Um, but anyway, uh, in 2017, I came across the name Andy Price. And I uh, put uh, a freedom of information uh, request into the Foreign Office to find out about Andy Price, about his team. I asked what size is his team, how much money do they have, and this kind of thing. And I was uh, hitting a stone wall extremely quickly. I went to the Information Commissioner, and in fairness to them, as understaffed and underfunded as they are, they did their best. And around the time that we're going to put your parliamentary question on screen in a second, but around the time that you were asking your parliamentary questions about Integrity Initiative and about uh, the uh, uh, the Russia uh, initiative in the in the Foreign Office, um, the uh, Information Commissioner on my behalf was in the Foreign Office asking for information. And what was fascinating about it, Chris, was that at the end of the day, you got an answer from I think Alan Duncan to your That's parliamentary right. questions. And I got an answer via the information commissioner, and the text was identical in both cases. Yeah. So, so clear, clearly. But anyway, I wanted to just briefly bring the parliamentary questions that you asked uh, in December 2018 on screen, uh, because this this is quite an important part of this story. Um, so, you asked to, to ask the Secretary of State for Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs, pursuant to Answer Three in December 2018 on Foreign and Commonwealth Office Integrity Initiative. First of all, if he will publish his department's documents and correspondence on grant arrangements agreements for the Integrity Initiative. And your, uh, the answer that you got from Alan Duncan was uh, talking about the Foreign Office's counter disinformation and media development team, uh, that uh, an example was the Russian disinformation campaign that followed the attack in Salisbury. This was a justification for this team existing, uh, which was intended to distract from Russian culpability. Documents and correspondence about projects within the program will not be published as this information will then be used to actively attempt to disrupt and undermine the program's effectiveness. Uh, but you then asked uh, the Secretary of State for Foreign and Commonwealth Affairs uh, uh, what the amount and the recipient name was for grants paid from the FCO-led Russian language program in the latest period and which figures are available. In fact, you were given the same answer to that question. Uh, you then asked uh, about uh, Integrity Initiative and whether funding provided to the Institute for Statecraft, which ran the Integrity Initiative, was through the Foreign Commonwealth Office-led Russian language program, which they then acknowledged uh, that it was, and that was funded by the Counter Disinformation and Media Development Program team. So this little team is 
clearly extremely secretive. The, the justification that the Foreign Office gave for not answering my uh, information request was uh, on the grounds of national security. Um, but I just wanted to get your thoughts on this because clearly here what we had was uh, an, an organization based in the um, Foreign Office, which countered to the uh, narrative at the time that it was only dealing with disinformation coming from abroad and therefore only operating abroad. In fact, the Integrity Initiative, which it funded, was operating in the UK as well, helping to drive a war narrative, an anti-Russian war narrative initially. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and uh, very much, we're, we're, you know, we're pushing that agenda. And uh, um, that was one of the uh, issues that uh, perhaps also made me unpopular with, uh, with uh, the likes of Alan Duncan, who described me in, in his book, uh, his diaries, parliamentary diaries, as the most hated man in parliament, which was quite a nice accolade, frankly, for all the people to be hated by. I, I couldn't think of a better cohort, actually, because I would be worried, actually, if I was, if I was liked by them, if I'm honest. Uh, but yeah, I mean, um, I went to visit that uh, that disused warehouse that you mentioned um, in, um, or disused mill or whatever it was in Octomuchi, uh, uh, I think it's called, near Dundee. Uh, and you're absolutely right; it, it, it is derelict. I mean, or semi-derelict. There's one, there's one or two business units in there. And um, what we also discovered was, as well as them being bankrolled to multi-million pound, uh, to the tune of you know multi-million pound grants from uh, the Foreign Commonwealth Office and indeed from the Ministry of Defence as well, actually. Um, and that was only for over a, 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 an 18-month, slightly less period uh, of time. Uh, uh, and for all the talk about countering uh, Russian disinformation, uh, if you believe that, what we always also discovered is that they were, they were, they were attacking Jeremy Corbyn uh, and prominent members of the Labour Party. Uh, and that was what, you know, should have been a scandal if it was. It was a mini scandal, as it were. And, you know, they were highly embarrassed, I think, that that, that, that came out. And I made a complaint to the to the Scottish equivalent of the uh, Charity Commission, where they're registered as charity. And uh, they did make a ruling that they that they were acting out with the, you know, charitable uh, aims. So I know some people have, have suggested that was the, the main reason that I was attacked. I'm not sure that's necessarily true, but it certainly didn't help my cause, I suppose. And, um, you know, it's pretty clear that, you you know, you there you had. I mean, I guess, and again, that's, you know, just sort of scraping the, uh, you know, to, to the, 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 the little bit of the iceberg, as it were. You know, we're only getting uh, that's just one project. I mean, you know, there'll be many others as well, I'm sure. Um, I did actually try to uh, doorstep the uh, Integrity Initiative in, uh, or the Institute of Statecraft in, in London as well, uh, but had the door slammed in my face. I think it was Chris Donnelly that, uh, that did that, uh, former intelligence operative, I believe. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, what's happening, I think, is, you know, they're kind of outsourcing a lot of their activities, aren't they, to, to contractors, uh, you know, the intelligence uh, services and uh, you know it's a very very dangerous and, and slippery slope it seems to me that that we're on and uh, you know again we need to be calling this out challenging it uh, it seems to me and and bringing this to the attention of the of the of the of the public because that's what they hate you know they hate this kind of because they want to kind of operate in you know in in the shadows don't they but it's had all the hallmarks didn't it uh, when it came to my attention of the you know, operation mockingbird that was exposed or revealed by the church committee following the the watergate scandal um but this is even more wide-ranging it seems to me than, than than operation mockingbird was which discovered that the intelligence services in the states were you know got tame journalists on their on their books and they were placing stories in the uh, in the media there uh uh, that basically reinforced the you know the state's sort of position on on different issues. Um, they were infiltrating the you know the student movement, the civil rights movement. Um, but the Integrity Initiative went much further than just the United Kingdom. I mean, they had operatives you know throughout Europe, maybe further than that. Clusters, as they called them, and and they were um, they were mobilised when uh, Pedro Banos uh, was. Uh, in line to become the uh, uh, head of uh, Homeland Security, I think it was, in Spain. Um, he's a, he's a, an author, a, a senior figure in the, in the Spanish uh, military. 
Um, but he'd made some softball remarks about Russia. Um, again, I, I'm paraphrasing what he was saying, but essentially he was making the point that Russia really doesn't doesn't really have a negative impact, if you like, on, on Spain's national interest. That, that was a sense, I think, of what he was saying. I mean, and for that, he was absolutely demonised. Um, he didn't get the role. I mean, he was in line. It was a shoe-in, apparently, to become the... Uh, the head of uh, Homeland Security. There. He never. He was then dropped from that role. His. Um, he had a book out that that was uh, pulped actually. <laughs> apparently, I think it was Penguin, and I may be wrong on that, but I'm pretty sure it was Penguin. He had a book deal. I mean, and he was attacked as an anti-Semite. Um, you know, the usual um, default sort of smear. Um, and uh, you know, he'd got this uh, lucrative uh, book deal, but uh, yeah, that was then withdrawn. And as I say, the books that had been printed, they pulped them. It's incredible. I mean, this is at the behest of uh, of this uh, Integrity Initiative uh, cluster that, that, that got to work. And it wasn't just in terms of media, it was academics, with a range of different people in influential positions in this country and across Europe who are, who are going to be mobilised at a moment's notice. And there were some interesting uh, high-profile journalists on their, on their list of British uh, journalistic clusters, including David uh, Aronovich uh, as, uh, as one of them, and um, mm. uh, Carol Cadwallader was another one. Um, uh, you know, they all claimed it was very innocent, you know, they, but, but nevertheless, there we are. I mean, they, they were <laughs> named as part of the Integrity Chiefs Clusters. You know, I don't know, I can't say, you know, which, if any, uh, articles that they produced were uh, at the behest of the Integrity Initiative, but it's interesting that they they seem to be on, their, on the Integrity Initiative's books. Um, so the question then is... Um, it, it, to what degree would would we uh, be pursuing a war policy globally? And to in parallel with that, to what degree would the attack on Jeremy Corbyn, or the, the attack on your yourself, have succeeded without the full cooperation of the media? And is it the case that that the media is simply a, a uh, an arm of the deep state, or is it the media is infiltrated by operations like Integrity Initiative? Well, I mean, I think it's pretty clear it is an arm of the of the deep state. How that manifests itself, whether it's through infiltration or, or, or other means, uh, remains the same. But the, the you know the end product is the same thing, it seems to me, and you know that has been the case since well, time immemorial, really, I suppose. But I mean, a Julian Assange. Uh, has said that the uh, you know the illegal wars that have taken place. Well, he made the point, didn't he? All wars are started by lies, and if you know wars can be started by lies, truth can be started. Uh, sorry, peace can be started by truth. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, you know the um, the way in which the uh, you know, the journalists have, uh, have operated in terms of you know facilitating uh, wars. The you know the they, they actually created the environment, it's public opinion, to you know support the uh, war in in Iraq. Um, you know they provided the justification for it. You know the justification for um, you know the Afghanistan uh, issue. You know the whole kind of war on terror, etc. You know so they've absolutely been been willing um, agents of the state uh, forever. It seems to me. That's why the, the you know platforms like this and and the growth of of independent platforms is so important and of course one of the reasons why big tech is doing its level best to minimise their their impact. Yes, and Vanessa, of course, uh, you have been on the receiving end. I mean, Chris has been on the receiving end of quite some uh, nasty behaviour by from journalists, but um, perhaps Chris's life hasn't been put at risk. Well, yeah, I mean, the BBC ran um, for at least three years a, a, a hate campaign, really, against me, which resulted in them doxing my car in Syria, uh, publishing the number plate on the front page of the BBC website, um, which was clearly uh, a, a kind of a dog whistle to any extremist factions um to attack me i mean they did remove the number plate but the damage was already done um so yeah and i mean um if i can i just wanted to to ask one thing mike which was um i mean i was refused admission to the nuj not in the uk interestingly enough but in um paris because of my alleged anti-semitism 
um, in articles from my blog uh, based upon my own personal experience of Israeli aggression uh, against the people of Gaza in 2012 and, and then going forward in, in Syria, etc. Um, of course, there are uh, friends of Israel in the Labour Party and the Tory Party and so on. And Israel has huge influence, I believe, politically uh, in our country, but not only politically, industrially, through, through its expansion into, our, in, into every sector of our life, I believe, in the UK and in the EU, but we're focusing on the UK. To what extent, Chris, um, is that influence sustaining the, 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 the bipartisan war parties? And to what extent is, is that expanding now? Is, is, since Corbyn went, are we seeing a correlation in the expansion of the power of the Israel lobby in the UK, both through political means, diplomatic means, mediatic means, etc.? I think we are. And, uh, you know, the government's just signed off uh, um, a new um, arrangement, uh, collaboration with uh, the Israeli state on, on basically every facet of, 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 um, of life in, in, the, in the country, you know, education, industrially, mm. right across the, uh, the piece. Um, the role, the influence of the of the Israel lobby and you know Parliament is, is is immense. When I was in Parliament, there were probably half, if not more, of the Parliamentary Labour Party were actually members of the so-called Labour Friends of Israel. <clears throat> there was, I think, it was around eighty percent of the Conservative uh, MPs were members of the yeah. bare equivalent of it, uh, as it were, um, and they wield enormous uh, power and. Uh, you know, whether people actively support them, obviously a lot do in influential positions. Others are intimidated because of the of the influence that they have to you know not actually challenge, not not to uh, push back against um, you know the abuse of power that they that they undoubtedly will. So it is uh, it is worrying. I mean, of course, you've got the leader of the Labour Party now, Sir Keir Starmer, is on record as saying he supports Zionism without qualification. Um, you know, prior to him, you've got, you know, Gordon Brown going and speaking in the, in the Knesset, etc. Gordon Brown, indeed, um, just around about the time I was suspended, it may have been just after, making a video urging people to join the so-called uh, um, Jewish labor movement, which had actually only been reconstituted to undermine Jeremy Corbyn and to fight back against the the BDS movement. So yes, I think all the evidence shows that uh, we are finding this out more and more in the in the show that I present for uh, Press TV called Palestine Declassified, and basically we we, we expose the uh, the Israeli regime's global war against solidarity with the illegally occupied people. Of of Palestine, and, and it's right across the piece in the media, even in the music industry, uh, definitely in, in, in the kind of wider industry, industrial you know, field in that sense. So, yes, they, 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 they do wield huge influence. Um, they, they don't like what we do on Palestine Declassified because we're exposing them. This, 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 this notion that you know, knowledge is power is, is very, very true and important, and, and that's what we're doing as much as we can, to shine a light on, on what these characters are up to. Of course, I think always the default position, isn't it? You know, that, oh, it's just anti-Semitic. We, you know, we are, you know, we hate Jews. It's just absolutely absurd. But as Shilamot Aloni, the former Israeli minister uh, who let the cat out of the bag 20-odd years ago on uh, Democracy Now!, which has been interviewed on that platform, said, well, it's a trick that we always use, anti-Semitism, and Holocaust denial is another one. That they do, but I think people are wising up to it, despite all the best endeavours, despite the adoption of the IHRA working definition of anti-Semitism by the Labour Party and by various institutions around the country, universities, and so on and so forth. More and more people are are waking up to the abuse of the Israeli state. They've overplayed their hand, it seems to me. And you know, when then we saw that the most recent bombardment against Gaza by the Zionist entity. The rallies that took place around this country, 
were enormous. And in fact, just on my own hometown of Derby, it was literally the biggest rally that we've ever seen in Derby. And people mm. were, were, were supporting it. There was a mark on two days and people were literally coming out of the shops and pubs to join in the march or, or to simply applaud. Uh, and because I think what, what we're finding through independent platforms like yours, through social media, through, you know, if you like, citizen journalists on the ground in Gaza using smartphones to actually record what is happening. And, you know, many of the people there, you know, speak good English and they're able to impart, they'll upload this information onto the Internet. So more and more people, you know, are seeing it, seeing the reality, uh, which conflicts 180 degrees from the propaganda. And uh, so they're losing the, the battle, it seems to me. And um, obviously the resistance on the ground in Palestine is, is going stronger. And it's being supported by Iran. And of course, that's another reason why, you know, Iran is, uh, is so uh, demonized, uh, because it is lending its uh, practical support to the resistance uh, in, in Palestine against the, uh, the Zionist colonizers. One more thing. Um, the... Related to, back to the, the counter-disinformation media development program in a sense, but uh, Big Brother Watch, of course, has been uh, discussing that and, and other uh, censorship-related issues. And one of the things that they were discussing recently was the activities of 77 Brigade and the fact that 77 Brigade uh, had been uh, apparently um, surveilling uh, everybody, including MPs. Um, and of course, we still have an MP uh, serving, although he's lost his yes. job as chair of the Defence Select Committee, uh, Tobias yeah. Elwood, who's yeah. a reservist for 77 Brigade. Now, yeah. going back to 2013, um, uh, Rory Stewart, MP, um, attended the Bilderberg Group. And at the time, we asked him uh, in what capacity did he attend? Was he there personally or as an MP? And what did he discuss? And of course, he refused to tell us what he discussed because he claimed that MPs are entitled to a private public life. And that <laughs> seemed a very strange position to take to us because if you're serving uh, a serving MP, you're supposed to be serving the people, uh, then everything that you do in service to the people should be public, it seemed to us. And Tobias Elwood has fallen back on the same excuse. He is saying he will not uh, divulge whether he has been uh, on active service um, it, while he's been sitting as an MP because he's entitled, that's a private matter and he's entitled uh, to keep that private. And in fact, a freedom of information request to the Ministry of Defence garnered the same thing. They said they have the information. They'll neither confirm or deny whether Tobias Elwood has been serving while he's been an MP on 77 Brigade. But I wanted to ask you, what is your view of this position that an MP, a serving MP is entitled to a private public life? Well, I don't think that was uh, uh, what uh, you just, you know, the examples you just outlined there. I mean, that doesn't constitute a private life, it seems to me. I mean, yes, I mean, everybody's entitled to a private life to some extent. But when you are engaged in activities, you know, like that, like the Bilderberg Group or whatever, or the Trilateral Commission that uh, Roy Stewart was also uh, a member of in the past, as was the Sakia Starmer, um, then that is a matter of uh, public interest, it seems to me. And uh, I don't think that that excuse is legitimate in any way, shape or form. And, uh, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, they've used that excuse, I think, is very revealing in itself. And I think many, many people, uh, you know, would be horrified to, to learn that, you know, parliamentarians, uh, you know, be using their position to be involved in, in these sorts of nefarious um, bodies, which... Um, you know, have a, have a, can have, a, you know, do have a, a profound impact on our daily lives. That is surely a, a, a matter that, that, you know, that should be uh, in the public domain. And, uh, you know, there should be no excuse, it seems to me, that they can legitimately put forward to, you know, obfuscate and, 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 and avoid providing that level of information. But, uh, you know, our, our system is broken. That's the tragedy of it. And, uh, you know, we need uh, to essentially start again that's why you know coming back to the point we were talking about earlier on in our conversation the the importance of trying to build you know an alternative uh, coherent movement to to challenge some of this is, is so crucially important and again to you know keep coming back to you know the importance of platforms like yours really really crucial that we do support them because you know you do give an alternative perspective and uh, you know the more people that we can we can you know, uh, uh, upskill with, with, with that knowledge, I think, the more chance we'll have 
are building a coherent movement, but coherent movement that you know that can challenge the status quo. But they are obviously very well dug in and are incredibly powerful, and uh, that's why you know it comes back to that other point I made about about solidarity, really about about collective action, because that's that's the power that we've got when we stand together, and that's what frightened them so much about Jeremy Corbyn, and I think it's what frightens them actually about about. Uh, Russell Brand as well, uh, you know, when he went on a speaking tour and went on various uh, shows in the United States of America, um, there was huge um, support, you know, from the audience of, you know, cheers and, and applause uh, of approval for some of the um, exposés that, that he was using those opportunities, those interviews to, to, to bring about, you know, the abuses of power, etc., big pharma and and the military-industrial complex, etc., cetera. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's why they seek to close him down. That's why they spent so much time and effort into destroying the, the Corbyn project, because ultimately it was popular, and it was, it was, it was reaching people that had, that had turned off politics. I mean, that was, that was a thing that I think frightened them as well, that many people who'd, who'd given up on, on politics uh, were being inspired. To, to, to get involved. And, you know, the Labour Party grew to become the biggest party in Western Europe, although you'd never know it with the sort of level of adverse publicity that Corbyn was subjected to. But uh, again, you know, to, to come back to what we were saying at the top of the discussion, uh, Jeremy, um, you know, didn't seize the moment, really. He, he, um, he allowed, you know, his, his enemies, our enemies, to, uh, to prevail by not actually using the power that he had at his disposal there with this huge mass movement, which could have continued to grow, I think, had, had Jeremy, you know, seized that opportunity to really build an, an embedded social movement that, 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 that would have facilitated, I think, that potential irreversible shift in the balance of, of wealth and power that that 1974 Labour Party manifesto talked about, uh, and to some extent what, what Jeremy was hoping to do. And I think we just, in conclusion, we need to look at the examples of, of, of Latin America uh, and, you know, perhaps the most recent one in Bolivia where a US-backed coup that ousted de Evo Morales just after he'd won a landslide election victory, the movement towards socialism in Bolivia brought the country to a standstill. And within a 12, well, less than 12 months, they forced the coup regime to hold new elections and the socialists stormed back to power with an even bigger majority than Morales achieved uh, in, the, in the previous year. That's a model that we should be seeking to replicate, it seems to me. And what they recognise there, and I've spoken to people in Bolivia, what they recognise there, that it's so crucial that you don't put all your eggs in the electoral uh, basket, as it were. Yes, elections are you know, important. Getting elected representatives uh, is, 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 is an important aspect uh, of, of trying to bring about change. But unless you've got that strength in depth, unless you've got that solid social movement behind it, then they inevitably end up losing their way. And that's why they, I think, uh, you know, were so successful and, and why, you know, they, they, they put that, you know, front and centre, that, 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 that social movement is, the, from their perspective, is, is the key thing, the most important thing, more important even than, uh, you know, the, than the, the sort of elections per se. And, and that's how it proved to be, didn't it? So it proved to be in what, in what happened. You know, we could only have to look at the evidence of our own eyes, just very recent history, where uh, they were able to push back against a, a U.S.-backed uh, coup. Incredible achievement, really, when you think about it, uh, and you think of the history of U.S. interventions around the, around the globe. Uh, so that's the prize, um, as difficult as it is to, to bring about, but uh, you know, those of us that, that believe in that, you know, we have to keep fighting and keep pushing and, and to try and you know, bring that, that collective sense of power to an increasing, ever-increasing number of people to... Give them the confidence that, you know, uh, when, when we do work together, when we do stand together, then, then we can overcome uh, all the challenges that are put in our way. Okay, thank you very much for that. And just to, just to finish, Chris, uh, just let people know how they can uh, follow your work. Yeah, well, I'm on uh, social media. So it's uh, at Chris W. Um, no, it's not. It's at Darby Chris. I'm getting it wrong. Actually, it's at Darby Chris W uh, on on Twitter. And if you just search me on on Facebook, um, uh, just my name, Chris Williams. I've got two. I've got a personal uh, platform and, a, and then a 
a, a Facebook page. I'm not brilliant at this new technology and so on and so forth. But, uh, <laughs> they're, they're, they're the two areas that I'm, uh, that I'm most active on. And if I could just give a quick plug, if I may, for my book, which is uh, 10 Years of Hard Labour, which actually sets out the, um, that, that, that period of, of history uh, from 2010 through to 2020 that was, uh, well, we, we, you know, it, 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 there was such a potential, really. I mean, there was a, talk about a, a roller coaster of, of emotions, really. I mean, it was a, uh, uh, a, a really significant period in our, in our history. And, I, and I've tried to plot it from my perspective, really, in terms of what, what I witnessed. And, uh, um, and I've also given some, some thoughts about, you know, how we might be able to, to move forward, as it were. But uh, yeah, if people are interested in that, in that tumultuous uh, period of history, um, I would hope people uh, would consider looking either buying a book or, or downloading the, the uh, Audible app, which uh, it's, it's now available in that format as well and if people are interested in that the details of where to purchase my book can be obtained uh because it's pinned to the top of my twitter profile okay thank you very much i say thank you very much to chris williamson and to vanessa billy for joining us today um that's been a hugely interesting conversation i'm sure it's going to uh garner a lot of uh, response uh, so thank you both and uh, we will see you all next time bye-bye